0: Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm JF Martel. Did the universe come into being on its own, the natural outcome of natural processes, obeying the same principles as a stone rolling down a hill? Or was it somehow created and thus endowed with intention and design from the start? The question has vexed humanity for millennia, and while secular and religious types continue to fight over it, sometimes viciously, there is broad agreement between them that the answer must be one or the other. But in his story The New Cosmogony, the Polish science fiction writer Stanislav Lem proposes a third answer, namely that while the universe may have originally arisen in a senseless cosmic event, over the course of its existence it has had plenty of time to evolve beings powerful enough to rewrite the laws of physics, such that the universe we now inhabit, 13 billion years after the Big Bang, is designed through and through. The French philosopher Kanté Méassou made a similar claim in his unpublished dissertation L'inexistence divine, when he argued that while we can know for certain that there is no God, we can also know, with equal certainty, that nature is capable of producing such a being as God in the future, and that we are therefore within our rights to believe in such a being. Both Méassou and Lem are trying to end the deadlock of secularism and religion, of science and myth. In Lem's case, we are offered a universe governed by, quote, unseen players, godlike entities hiding behind the curtain of phenomenal reality and working the levers of physics to fine-tune a new cosmos over countless eons. In today's episode, Meredith Michael joins us to talk about this fascinating story by Stanislav Lem. But dear listener, expect no answers from us, only more questions. What the unseen players want, no one can know. All we can know, according to Lem's narrator is that they exist and wield a power tantamount to magic. And do you know who else for sure exists and does magic? The unseen players who support weird studies on Patreon, that's who. If you enjoy this show, you have them to thank, because without their support, we would lack the means of erupting ex nihilo into your RSS feed every fortnight. In return for their demiurgic work, the unseen players get to enjoy bonus material every off week. For listeners dear patrons, This includes regular audio recordings made exclusively for them. So if you dig this podcast and would like to prolong its existence, consider joining the Weird Studies Patreon and proving, at least to Phil, Meredith, and myself, that magic really does exist. And while we're on magic, I'm pleased to announce that I'll soon be teaching another online course on the NeuroLearning platform, this one entitled Groundwork for a Philosophy of Magic. Lem and Mayasu are just two of the many thinkers and artists we'll be discussing in this series of lectures and group discussions which runs for seven weeks starting May 3rd. For more information, go to NeuroLearning.com and follow the link to Groundwork for a Philosophy of Magic. I'm putting everything I have in this one, and I hope to see you there. All right, on with Behind the Cosmic Curtain on Stanislav Lem's The New Cosmogony. We hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: Question. This is yeah. important. How do you pronounce the word? Is it cosmogony or cosmogony?
2: I say cosmogony. I looked it up because I've been saying cosmogony all this time and it uh, turns out I'm wrong.
1: Oh, it's cosmogony? It's,
2: it's supposedly a hard G.
1: Okay. All right.
2: Supposedly.
1: I definitely thought it was the other one, but now I know. I don't want to sound like an uneducated person.
2: <laughs> I've
0: uh, developed the very good habit of looking up pronunciations before we record. <laughs> Especially name pronunciations Like yeah. Ari- Aristides is how I read Aristides um, oh. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm French And I actually knew an Aristid, But uh, Aristides uh-huh. So I was like Aristides Aristides. How do you pronounce this word? So I looked it up. And- Aristides. Uh-huh. <laughs> Beef oven. <laughs> so great.
1: And my favorite one, Richard Wagner. Yeah.
0: Oh, I've heard that right. one. I, I was guilty of that one when I was younger.
2: Not to be confused with Robert Wagner, uh, right. the deeply tanned um, Hollywood leading man. Oh. If... If I'm if I'm remembering correctly, he always looked like a butterball fresh out of the oven. <laughs>
0: what? I know exactly who you're talking about, and I think that is Robert <laughs> Wagner.
1: <laughs> oh,
0: he looks just crispy on the outside, <laughs> <laughs> just like taking a bite out of his face.
1: <laughs> oh, <gosh.
3: laughs>
2: All right. Okay. So today we are talking about butterball. Stanislav Lem.
0: What? A butterball.
2: <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's. Uh, no. It's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> I'll just I'll just mute myself and you guys can start. <laughs> mm. Okay. I love it when uh you get a laugh going and it just feeds on itself and every attempt to stop it just builds it more and more. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a weird kind of agony, in fact, yeah, it when is. when you're in a social circumstance and mm-hmm. that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh-oh. It's like you're possessed, you're taken over. I can think of times, especially when I was a kid, and I'm like, no, no, no please. Yes. Yes. Stop <laughs> making me laugh.
1: Especially if you're in a, like, a serious situation, like at church or something.
2: Oh, God, yeah. That, especially if you're at church.
1: That happens to me more than I care to admit. I also, I don't know if this has happened to you, but I have this weird like impulse or something That sometimes when I'm in a situation where I really need to be quiet, I get this uncontrollable tickle in my throat that makes me have to cough, like, so bad. Yeah. And I don't know where it comes from. It's just, like, some kind of nervous autonomic response, and it's very annoying.
2: It's what Poe called the imp of the perverse, right? Mm. That's the part of you that's like, screw this, not talking, not making noise not taking up much space in a room thing. Right. There's a part of you that refuses to go quietly. All right, so here we are with our third story we didn't have time to to discuss last time. That's right. Stanislav Lem's volume, A Perfect Vacuum, a collection of short stories, each of which is the review of an imaginary book, an idea that he got from Jorge Luis Borges, and it's a delightful collection. This is the last story of the collection called A New Cosmogony. Yeah. Or sorry, The New, the new Cosmogony. No, A New. Ah. Indefinite nope, article. Says,
0: oh, says, yeah, the, the
2: story's called that. But sorry, the book he's reviewing, or the book they're discussing is called A New Cosmogony. Sorry. Ah, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and already we are coming up against one of the interesting things about the story the blurred lines between the book as it exists as a piece of fiction and the story as it exists and as an actual thing you're holding in your hand right now i'm holding the purple backed volume of a perfect vacuum in my hand so the story that appears in that volume is called the new cosmogony but you're quite right the book that it reviews is Aristides, or Aristides. Aristides. Now, now I don't know how to say that <laughs> word. A book by Aristides Acheropoulos called A New Cosmogony. And this kind of, say like, okay, are we talking about the story? Are we talking about the imaginary book that the story is based on? Comes up particularly noticeably in the introduction to A Perfect Vacuum, which is... Signed by Lem himself. So the idea is that the introduction of this book called A Perfect Vacuum is itself by Lem, and that it's Lem reviewing the book, A Perfect Vacuum. Nice. But not the book you're holding in your hand, an imaginary version of this book that has a totally different introduction
3: mm-hmm.
2: called Automomus, from which Lem quotes referring to um so lem writes of the introduction which we're reading right now (laughs) like i am reading from the introduction of this book which is telling us about the fictional introduction Mm -hmm. of which lem says the trouble is lem's erudite introduction doesn't seem to want to end In it, he discourses on the positive aspects of nothingness, on ideal subjects in mathematics, and on new meta-levels of language. It is all a bit drawn out, as if in jest. What is more, with this overture, Lem is leading the reader, and perhaps himself as well, afield. So, Lem accusing his fictional doppelganger of writing a tedious, lengthy, theoretical, philosophical introduction In the introduction we are reading, that is not any of those things, although if you think about it, technically, LAM, in his introduction, does in fact bring up such matters as uh, ideal objects in mathematics, simply by listing them as things that exist in this imaginary paratext. So I don't want to kind of like spend too much time on that introduction. We're talking about that last story, New Cosmogony, which is clearly the centerpiece of the, the collection. But just to kind of bring that up as an example of the kind of tricksy, metafictional moves that Lem is making, a kind of playfulness that is one of the most enjoyable things, like serious playfulness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. is just a very enjoyable aspect of the story.
0: Yeah. Also some interesting um, resonances with one of the stories we discussed last time, uh, Meredith's story, She names Them, mm-hmm. by Ursula K. Le Guin, where we really dug into her exploration of the meaning of names. And obviously that's a big theme of the story and what, what a name is and what a name does. I, I'm finding Lem's play, the play he engages in when it comes to like the titles of book titles of texts that are also the titles of the texts about the text and that sort of thing just invites some interesting parallels because there's kind of this weird, kind of metaphysical slippage where a name means one thing and then it denotes something else the next time you read it or, you know, and the way that names seem to like just slide across the surface of the world without really touching anything. There's a kind of a slipperiness to language and to Mm. everything he's doing in this,
2: well, in this certain story. I haven't read the other fictional reviews. Well, but there's also- a certain slipperiness of the cosmogony that the story is laying yeah, out to us. Exactly. Definitely.
0: I mean, it's like this hall of mirrors. It's this mm-hmm. infinite regress of weirdness. It's funny how our three stories really work together because we really did pick them. We just randomly nominated a story each without really thinking of what the others were, were bringing forward. But there's a lot of really interesting resonances.
1: Do you think we should summarize the story first?
0: Sure.
2: <laughs> yes. Let's.
1: All right, so basically, this one is written in the form of a Nobel Prize acceptance speech by some physicist who has come up with this new and groundbreaking model of the universe. And in this acceptance speech, this professor Alfred Testa is basically crediting all of his discoveries to this unknown book that. He read a while ago called A New Cosmogony by Aristides Akropoulos. So, most of the speech, which is actually quite long for a short story, is him telling about how that book came to be, talking about the ideas in it, and then basically saying, Here are some responses people have had to the book, and this is how it's informed my own research, and I made it into a viable scientific theory. Whereas before, people thought it was just kind of the ramblings of a madman, or perhaps a joke, or perhaps science fiction itself. So, the ideas in this fictional book slash news cosmogony that this guy has come up with is that we tend to think of the origins of the universe in two separate ways. One, in the purely scientific way that, you know, at the beginning of the Big Bang, the universe kind of exploded into being and then the laws of physics were just there. And just following these laws, the rest of the universe kind of melded into what it is now. And then the other is the purely religious view that is everything was created how it is by a deity. And this is purportedly a third way. Which is that when the universe came into being, there were different pockets where things were just different. The laws of physics were different. Everything worked differently. And that beings arose in those pockets. And after a while, they found out that there were other beings in the universe or there were other places in the universe that they couldn't go to because everything worked differently. And so.
2: And couldn't communicate with as well.
1: No, exactly. But somehow they all decided that they were going to start basically playing a game together. And the game's goal was to align all of the different pockets of the universe with each other so that the laws of physics would align as well as possible. So the ultimate goal is basically to potentially communicate with each other or be able to travel between these points. However, in order to do that, it would take billions of years of very slow changes in the laws of physics. And the main problem that this story is dealing with is the Fermi paradox, which is that according to the laws of science as we know it, there should be other life in the universe. It just is impossible that there isn't. And yet, we have not ever seen it or heard of it. So why could that be? And the answer that is given in this book, in this fictional text, is that it was made this way on purpose by these players, by these beings that are working their long game to perfect the universe because they don't want other beings arising that are not smart enough to get it and then them messing everything up. So, in order to do that, they have to restrict communication between everyone that exists in the universe. And that explains why the universe is constantly expanding. So if you send out a message, it's not going to get anywhere because everything's just continually moving away from each other. And also time, time moves forward so that you can't go back in time and like talk to people that way.
0: But all of these physical laws, like the physical laws that make communication difficult across you know, star systems or the, the physical laws that impose the arrow of time, mm-hmm. all of these things are in a sense, arbitrary Put in Mm -hmm. by the players, right? That's the thing. Is that in this new cosmogony, there is no longer any real or or
1: fundamental
0: fundamental difference between nature and technology. Everything is technology. The laws of physics themselves are artifice, and that's how this physicist or this writer of of a new cosmogony manages to marry the religious view and the scientific view in this new kind of synthesis.
2: Or as the fictional author, Testa, I think is his name. Mm -hmm. Testa emphasizes the heterodoxy, the heresy of this book. Mm -hmm. And some of the most engaging passages of it are the testament of a man who feels he owes everything in his intellectual life. He owes his Nobel Prize. He owes his success as a physicist. The man who has been Trumpeted worldwide as the the man who has put all of physics on a new footing. And the whole point of his speech is to say, yeah, but to understand my thinking, you have to understand the man who invented this, Yeah, this Aristides Acaropoulos. You have to understand that guy and what he's doing. And some of the most enjoyable parts to me are the fictional embellishments about the book itself and also his memories of reading this book as a graduate student and being rocked to the foundations of his being. I like that partly because I love books like that, and I've had a somewhat similar experience myself with Lionel Snell's book, Sysotpame, S-S-O-T-B-M-E, which... If you don't know, it stands for Sex Secrets of the Black Magicians Exposed, even though that is not what the book is about. It's a little (laughs) joke. Um, Very typical of Lionel, who has a very funny sense of humor. But I had very much a similar experience that Testa does to discovering this book by Acaropolis. Now, Testa writes, talking about the book itself, His book fell into my hands when I was a doctoral candidate in the mathematics department at the University of Switzerland, the very place where Albert Einstein once worked as a clerk for the patent office, in his spare time engaged in laying the foundations of a theory of relativity. I was able to read this little book because it had been put out in an English translation, an abominable translation, I might add. Moreover, it was a title in a science fiction series whose publisher printed only such literature and no other. The original text, as I learned much later, had been subjected to an abridgment practically by half. Undoubtedly, the circumstances of this edition, over which Acaropolis had no control, gave rise to the opinion that although he had written A New Cosmogony, he himself did not take seriously the theses contained in it. I love those little details. Being published by a cheapjack sci-fi press that doesn't publish philosophical works at all, uh, in a mutilated... And clumsy English language translation. The idea of a book containing arch heresies and way of thinking that, as Testa tells us repeatedly, offends both against religious and scientific dogma. Yeah. The idea that you would find this, and this is straight up trash stratum stuff, right? That you would find this book not published in a prestigious university press series, but a pulp publisher. Mm-hmm. And in this trash stratum, of course, everybody kicks it off to one side, as Testa tells us elsewhere, almost everybody who read it threw it aside in disgust and impatience, but he didn't. And that is the signal moment in his career. And we're led to believe in the intellectual history of the world. Yeah, that's great. And like I said, I had a little bit of that experience encountering me, which is self-published, a self-published book that I had to buy from the internet because there's no way you're going to find it in a bookstore. And I sometimes imagine, what would the effect of it have been if I'd found an early paper edition in a bookstore somewhere? If I had, uh, I would have had to have lived in England. Uh, it's the only places you would have probably found copies of it before about the year 2000 or whenever it was Lionel reprinted it. But I always imagine, what would that have been like to find this book? And it looks like just any small press occult book, but then you start reading it and you're like, oh, oh, (laughs) like this is a whole theory that kind of reframes my understanding of what magic is. And for that matter, it reframes my understanding of all these fundamental faculties of human existence. And yet it just looks like another largely worthless occult book of which there are countless. Yeah. And so I love that detail. Sorry, I'm going on probably excessively about this. But not n- not only the ideas, but like the whole setup of it. The whole I love setup it. of the kind of
0: mind-blowing read that determines the course of your life. I feel like reading Maya Su's After Finitude was that for me. The most recent example of that, that really rocked me. It gave me a factory reset, but it was a weird factory that I didn't know I came from. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what about you, Meredith? Do you have any such books in your in your past? Um
1: I think Sasatvami was kind of one of those for me too. Actually, I think just taking your class on esoteric studies was like an extended version of that because mm. I I don't know, I had this like very scientific worldview up to then, even though I am also religious. But I never thought that those two sides of me would ever be able to meet in some meaningful way, or to be able, especially to combine them in the academic setting. I think that was one of those Hmm. for me. Um,
2: Yeah, it's true, actually, that that book, Sasatpamy, does allow for that kind of reconciliation of magic and religion. Not reconciliation, maybe in the sense that maybe most people would imagine it's like you somehow blend them and come up with some third thing that... Combines them, but more of a epistemological way of bracketing them, understanding them as non non rivalrous. Yeah. Sorry, but you were going to say something else. I I didn't want to interrupt you.
1: And I mean, I think that one of the ways that that book does that is that it doesn't sit, bring them together, but gives alternatives alternative ways of looking at the world. Yeah. Because I know, like the the way he divides up different ways of looking at the world: the religious, the scientific, the magic, and the art. And Mm -hmm. I think that one way of breaking a dichotomy is also not just to bring them together, but to add alternatives, add third and fourth ways.
0: And just uh, skew the perspective, like uh, Owen Barfield opens Saving the Appearances with something to the effect of sometimes what you need isn't a new idea, but just a different slant. To the heresy, you know, the mm. the, the heretical nature of a, a new cosmogony, mm. uh, because there's a really nice passage on the same page there, Phil, that you read from about that, where uh, Testa is reflecting on how inadmissible, how um, yeah, how illicit the theory was when he mm. first encountered it. He writes. Once he, he's talking about the hypothetical reader of the book, A New Cosmogony, once the reader has grasped the scope of the author's conception, and in his mind there takes shape for the first time the idea of the palimpsest cosmos game with its unseen players who were perpetually alien to one another, the impression will never leave the reader that he is in communication with something sensationally, staggeringly new, and at the same time, that here is a plagiaristic repetition translated into the language of natural science, of the oldest myths, those myths that make up the impenetrable bedrock of human history. This unpleasant, even vexing impression derives, I think, from our regarding any synthesis of physics and the will to be inadmissible, I would even say indecent, to the rational mind. For myths are a projection of the will. The ancient cosmogonic myths, in solemn tones, and with a simple-hearted innocence that is the lost paradise of humanity, Tell how beings sprang from the conflict of demiurgic elements, elements closed by legend in various forms and incarnations, how the world was born of the love-hate embrace of god-beasts, god-spirits, or supermen, and the suspicion that precisely this clash, being the purest projection of anthropomorphism onto the blank space of the cosmic enigma, that this reducing of physics to desires was the prototype the author made use of, such a suspicion can never be altogether overcome. I like that because it gives us an example of what the author of A New Cosmogony is doing in his book isn't so much bringing in new content, although he is doing that, but he starts with a different slant. One thing that the scientific cosmogony and the religious cosmogony share is the idea that everything was fixed from the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. That God Mm -hmm. created the world in seven days and then set it in motion. And you see that reach a kind of radical extreme with the deists who believe that God like wound the universe up like a clock and actually let it run on its own.
3: Mm -hmm. And then
0: uh, on, on the science side, you have this idea that the laws of physics are almost kind of um, a causal, eternal, arbitrary fixities that were just, that had to be in place for the big bang to unfold as it did. And therefore What the author of A New Cosmogony, Acropolis, what he does is he entertains the idea that creation might be an ongoing thing, you know, that creation might be happening now. This reminded me of a great line from um, M. John Harrison's A Course of the Heart, which we discussed in a previous episode. We must not judge God by this world. It's just a study that didn't come off. In other words, Hmm. there's something unfinished, something still in the process of coming into being about the world, and that we err when we assume its completeness, it's, that it's finished, that there's, like something's still happening, that idea, that possibility is what allows Ekeropoulos to approach the kind of Fermi paradox problem, the, the silence universe problem from this totally new perspective. And basically provide a theory that allows us to believe that there is life everywhere while still accounting for the fact that we can't see or communicate with this life.
2: The first really clever, slick move that uh, we make in this story, well, maybe not the first, but, but where the chain of argumentation begins is this Fermi paradox thing. If the, you know, if the universe is 13 billion years old and it is abounding in planets like ours, which at the time Lem wrote this was not empirically verifiable, but has been abundantly verified in the last 20 years with space telescopes that have been able to see in much greater detail than earthbound telescopes can. He starts off by saying, okay, so like we've had 13 billion years for civilizations to emerge and become advanced enough that they could create, you know, mega structures like, Dyson spheres or whatever that we can observe, but we don't observe them. Surely a six or seven billion year old civilization would have reached a level of technological sophistication that we would have noticed them. But where are the megastructures? Where are the sophisticated forms of communication, the spaceships and blah, blah, blah? Where are the ruins? Where are the ruins? Where Mm -hmm. is anything? Mm -hmm. And the argument is, you're soaking in it. You're yeah. looking at it. Just look mm-hmm. out into the night sky and you are seeing a crowded society because the idea is like, hey man, if your society had several billion years to develop, like ours has had about 30,000, right? Yeah. Of uh, 30 to 50,000 of years in which what we call cognitively modern Hominids have emerged, not just Homo sapiens, but also Neanderthals. With technology,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, right. Cognitively modern, like less than 50,000 years, as opposed to like billions, right? And what could you get up to in a few billion years? Perhaps if we were such an advanced civilization, we can't imagine it, but it's reasonable to imagine that at a certain point, the technical mastery of such a civilization would go well beyond mere instrumentality, just making machines. And Testa remarks, that's something that we think of because we're a young species. And we think in terms of machines. But at a certain point, you don't need a machine to do stuff. You just change the laws of physics.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're already at that point now uh, in our society with... Bioengineering, you know, uh, mm-hmm. technology is going organic. And so we can already see how a technology might evolve fairly quickly in that direction and uh, achieve a point where its products don't look like what 19th century humans or 20th century humans, for that matter, think of as technology. And so yeah. all of a sudden, like, um, the universe itself is a technology.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. and I think, I think in the story he says the supposition is that the players are working at the micro level right now. And so I think part of this idea comes from the observation effect. I think that's what it's called, which is when scientists are observing quantum particles or subatomic particles it affects the state that those particles are yeah. in, it, or it seems to at least. And so he takes this and says, if we were to apply 10 to the 10 power amount of energy that we spend observing those particles, we would indeed be able to change what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and
0: we may already be changing what they're doing. We could actually change exactly. the, the parameters in which they behave. Certainly. Like, so So the idea is that it's just a question of pumping out enough energy to be able to change the balance of forces behind phenomena. And mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of the unfinished nature of the universe is such that we might be able to actually manipulate the, not just the you know, what comes up on the screen, but you know, the, the change the programming as well. And uh, that's a right. fascinating idea. I mean, I was speaking to this idea of, um, these players hiding in what we perceive to be nature is actually the, the technology or the work or the artifice of these unseen players. This is a very Lovecraftian idea, you know? In Lovecraft, the elder things, I think, one of the species of you know, extraterrestrial old ones who are present on Earth in some way, came to Earth and created organic life on Earth in order to hide from their enemies. And weirdly, just while I'm on that, I was hoping to get to this. I'm just going to jam it in because it's really fascinating. (laughs) This is a book that blew my mind when I was young. I was a teenager. I wrote Michael Harner, The Way of the Shaman. He's an anthropologist who eventually adopted a kind of a form of of, uh, South American shamanism and basically changed careers, just became a kind of medicine man, I guess. Hmm. And this is the book where he tells his story and he gives a bunch of techniques for uh, ecstatic experiences of all sorts and that sort of thing. It's a really cool book. But at the beginning of the book, he reports in detail on an ayahuasca uh, session he participated in. This is at a time where when I read this, ayahuasca was not something that was in any way known. In the drug culture of uh, of North America, it was very much a kind of almost quasi mythical plant uh, mm-hmm. brew, I, I should say, from the Amazon that only anthropologists and I think William Burroughs had tried out. Um, <laughs> so, but in it, he's reporting on his trip, and at one point, he has this really dark. There's a kind of this dark chapter to his visionary experience where he he encounters these giant reptilian creatures. Quote, reposing sluggishly at the lowermost depths of the back of my brain, where it met the top of the spinal column. I could only vaguely see them in what seemed to be gloomy, dark depths. So he, he meets these ancient reptilian, god like, dragon like creatures that are in this huge kind of shaft, this dark, cavernous shaft, but also the back of his brain. And these creatures communicate with him. He writes, they projected a visual scene in front of me. First, they showed me the planet Earth as it was eons ago, before there was any life on it. I saw an ocean, barren land, and a bright blue sky. Then, black specks dropped from the sky by the hundreds and landed in front of me on the barren landscape. I could see that the specks were actually large, shiny black creatures with stubby, pterodactyl like wings and huge, whale like bodies. Their heads were not visible to me. They flopped down, utterly exhausted from their trip. Resting for eons. Lovecraftian, anyone? Resting for eons. (laughs) They explained to me in a kind of thought language that they were fleeing from something out in space. They had come to the planet Earth to escape their enemy. The creatures then showed me how they had created life on the planet in order to hide within the multitudinous forms and thus disguise their presence. So it's like straight Whoa. out of Lovecraft, this guy experienced Crazy. this in the Amazon. And the great part is after the trip, he was totally freaked out by this. He's like, are we just kind of like a disguise, a mask for these demonic creatures that live in our brain? And he's like, now that I think of it, maybe they're, the, they're our DNA, these reptilian things. And they just create us to hide. And it, that would be exactly what Dawkins says, that we are basically just the survival machines of our DNA, which are the real oh. masters. But anyway, so he he kind of gets really <laughs> spooked and he goes to the shaman who gave him the and he says he he describes what he experienced and the shaman just shakes his head and laughs and says oh those guys they always say that
2: (laughs) 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 oh i love that
1: (laughs) you know i like i i I like this idea though of (laughs) creatures like eldritch creatures that are too big to really be observed. Yeah. I've always for yeah. a while ago I thought of writing this story that I never really have that's kind of like a a Lovecraftian version of Jack and the Beanstalk where the Appalachian Mountains are not actually mountains but are actually like plowed fields for these giants that exist that move so slowly and are so large that we just have never really noticed that they're there and and this is actually kind of a better version of that where the existence of everything itself is the field yeah of these creatures and is the evidence itself of that i really like that
2: Like the idea in the story, The New Cosmogony, that um, these are, I mean, just the, the passage that JF read out loud, that this is a way of figuring the oldest Cosmogony. The idea that all of the forces of nature, storms and oceans and fires and whatnot, all of that is the manifestation of gods and demons and titans fighting it out among themselves. And yet, at the same time, this is a, seems to me to be characteristic of Lem in his sort of literary project, although the guy wrote a farmer's grip of stories. And I've only read Solaris and A Perfect Vacuum. So, you know, I don't know wh- how much I can generalize just from those two books. No, but I've gotten the impression that Lem was, at heart, a scientific naturalist and somebody who had very little patience for mysticism or anything that he would think of as slipshod thinking but he was also himself something of a heresiarch which is how asheropolis is characterized in the story somebody who within a basically scientific framework wants to think of ways to undermine that framework and so as Testa slash Lem point out in this story, one of the most fundamental prohibitions in science is the mixing up of the physical universe with conscious will and intention. Um, This is on page 205. It's talking about the history of relations between science and faith. Originally, science collided with faith, which produced well-known, often ghastly results that the churches to this day are somewhat ashamed of, even though science has silently forgiven them their former persecutions. At last, a state of cautious neutrality was reached between science and faith, the one endeavoring not to get in the way of the other. It was as a result of this coexistence, touchy enough, hence enough, that the blindness of science came about, evident in science's avoidance of the ground on which rests the idea of the new cosmogony. This idea is closely connected with the notion of intentionality, in other words, with what is part and parcel of a faith in a personal God. For intentionality constitutes the foundation of such a faith. According to religion, after all, God created the world by an act of will and design, that is to say, by an intentional act, And so science declared the notion to be suspect and even forbade it outright. It became, in science, taboo. One was not permitted even to make the least mention of it, lest one fall into the mortal sin of irrationalistic deviation. That fear not only sealed the lips of the scientists, it sealed their brains as well. And anybody who listens to the show, anybody in the weirdest fear is going to nod their heads in assent to that, the idea that it is indeed this insistence that there can be no will or intention or design in the universe itself, but only in its dependent creations, i.e. us, that that itself is perhaps the most fundamental thing that distinguishes the intellectual weirdosphere from the more general intellectual milieu, the academic milieu. And it seems to me that Lem, as A scientific naturalist who, nevertheless, is also kind of a shit disturber and wants to stir things up just a little bit. I almost wonder if he set himself the task of thinking okay, how could you imagine a scientific theory that would reintroduce will and intention to the cosmos without also asserting the existence of a god? Right. And so, this idea that simply through the processes of evolution, you would end up with. Beings and societies that would reach a level of technological accomplishment that they would be able to transform reality itself. Yeah, is a cool way to do it. Yeah, actually has something in common with like 2001 simulation theory. Yeah. Also, oh yeah, and yeah, we're 2001. Yeah.
1: This, were, I think, a real scientists. I mean, not saying Limbs not a real scientist, but you know, like scientists writing in the scientific medium ish have also tried to do this. I'm really interested in this kind of thing. There's a book that I read a few years ago called Reason and Wonder by this mathematician named David Pruitt. And the book was kind of the history of how science and religion split and how it's supposedly kind of coming back together in metaphysics. And uh, he eventually ends up kind of suggesting this very interesting idea that entropy which is seemingly a fundamental law of the universe seems to be kind of you know a an evil force like oh my god cat sorry
2: <laughs>
1: speaking of entropy yeah.
2: um, and and evil of crafty entities yeah, yes so.
1: she's like hovering above my head right now
2: this is Kira right yes. Yeah, force of pure evil and destruction.
1: (laughs) That's her. I I mean, (laughs) yeah, the whole uh, mythology of good versus evil plays out in my home on the daily. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, yeah, David Pruitt. So he talks about entropy as, you know, you think of it as kind of this evil force in the world. However, in the world as it exists right now we also have the force of evolution which has created humans which are seemingly more advanced and intelligent than any other creature that we've ever seen before and so his idea is that potentially human beings could keep evolving and intentionally evolve to become better spiritual physical beings and that entropy is kind of necessary for that and that basically the universe in having this force of entropy is sacrificing itself so that we might exist or that so better beings might exist so at the end he says we know this kind of idea as love Uh, so in that way he's Mm. kind of like trying to introduce this form of intentionality into how things are working and also this this idea of continuing evolution and this process of becoming rather than just everything is how it is and that's it.
0: There's a nice parallel there with Pruitt's thinking on this and, you know, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, the great... he talks about
1: him a lot too. Yeah,
0: who basically saw the universe as the act of creation is ongoing and bringing about what we understand as the human is like part of a process of God's own incarnation. Um, mm-hmm. so like, And this is an idea that Thiel gets probably. I can't remember how much he refers uh, to Scotus, but Duns Scotus, who, whose doctrine of the primacy of Christ was that the idea of God's incarnation in human form was the original idea behind creation from the beginning. The common understanding in Christian orthodoxy is that God had to incarnate in order to help humans along. But The idea from Scotus is that, well, God's omniscience was such that everything was seen from the beginning, and therefore the pinnacle of creation in the mind of God was from the beginning incarnation, such that God created the world in order to become incarnated. So there's a kind of becoming of the divine, a becoming human of the divine, and a becoming divine of the human that's part Mm. of the process of the universe itself in that kind of uh, Christian cosmogony. But mm. interestingly, I saw a video essay recently, and I don't remember the details, but the argument there was that entropy increases freedom. Entropy increases the probabilistic field of entities. What happens next becomes less and less predictable the more mm. entropy does its thing. So consciousness being a kind of open field of the possible, right? If you if you conceive consciousness of... You can know something is conscious by not being able to know what it'll do, what it does next. That's kind of mm-hmm. one of the... If you look at it that way, you could see entropy and consciousness as being very closely aligned. And that consciousness mm. increases in the universe as entropy increases. Mm. Yeah, mm.
1: It's interesting then that in this story, I don't really remember how it comes up, but he says maybe entropy is at the level that it is because they don't want systems of information to easily come up so that people can kind of access the level of the game.
0: Right. Uh, Uh, There's definitely a a kind of a Gnostic flavor to new Magani, right? These archons that are hiding behind the scenes, shaping our reality, making sure we don't access their, their knowledge, keeping us in a kind of prison. Um, At one point he observes that the author of A New Cosmogony, Akiropoulos, theorizes that, well, the players must be ethically good because the reason they don't allow us to communicate is because if we allowed everyone to communicate, it would probably cause some kind of disaster. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's out of goodwill that they protect us from. uh, But but then, of course, Testa observes that, well, this is just just wishful thinking and, and, and basically mm-hmm. projection on the author's part. Like, there's no mm-hmm. way we can know what their motivations are because we can't, we can only think of them in human terms and they're not human. So again, we're left in this idea, this kind of like almost Dickian black iron prison thing of these archons shaping this prison world in which we are stuck. There's, that's one possible kind of take on the world that's being described here.
1: Yeah, this actually reminds me a little bit of a novel of Lem's that I read and really kind of blew my mind called His Master's Voice. And it kind of deals with the same Fermi Paradox idea. It's a very like science fiction, as in like very scientific kind of book, kind of like how this story is written. And it originates when someone accidentally records I guess, neutron particles or some things, some signals that are coming from space and they notice that it forms a pattern. So it repeats this circular pattern over and over again. And of course, this is very important because usually all the signals from space are fairly random and they yeah. aren't going aren't, to aren't repeat. And so to, to the scientists, this signals that this must be some form of intelligence that is trying to contact them. And the entire novel is just the efforts of all the world's greatest scientists coming together in this like desert, like Area Fifty One kind of compound, and trying to decode this thing, and just failing miserably. Like they have no idea what it is. And uh, at at one point, they determine that a part of the signal tells them how to make this bio gel. That is kind of has some scientific usefulness, but they still are like, but what's the point of this? Like, is someone trying to communicate to us? Is this some kind of like weird excrement or something? Right. (laughs) Like people are coming up with all these crazy theories and at the end they just have to be like, we have no idea what this is. If somebody's communicating with us, it's possible that they're so advanced that they want to protect us from whatever information until we're ready. It kind of ends by saying, you know, science, as we know, it has limits, like obvious limits. We actually think we're so smart, but honestly, we're just like puny little creatures. However, it has some comfort in the idea that perhaps there is someone out there that has it together more than us and that maybe is looking out for us Mm. And so I think he, try- he tries to keep this option open, that yeah. there's something greater out there, even if it is other just, you know, beings in the universe.
2: What you were just saying, Meredith, just reminds me of a lot of passages in Solaris. One of whose principal pleasures, actually, is imagining the intellectual life of our planet, Mm -hmm. after the discovery of a sentient planet. So if you haven't read Solaris, it's a story about a world that is discovered by our space-faring future descendants, and this planet is covered in a kind of a gelatinous ocean. And the entire ocean, really the entire planet, is conscious and alive. And it is capable... Of tremendous feats, like it's actually capable of changing the orbit of the of itself and yeah. changing the alignment, like of shifting the, like, its weight. Yeah, shifting yeah. its weight. It's in a dual star system, which normally yeah, so was a figure eight. Yeah, yeah, which would normally kill it, but it's figured out a way to. So, it's actually a kind of a limited example of what he's talking about in the new cosmogony life form that evolves to the point that it can transform its own surroundings, which of course we do as human beings. I mean, the environment that we live in is one that we have created in dialogue with nature. I almost feel like saying so-called nature because (laughs) Lem's way of thinking asks us constantly to kind of question the boundary between the human and the natural. Mm. But the whole point, however, is that once this planet is discovered, there's a hard limit to what people are able to discover further about it like Mm -hmm. that certain things happen predictably like when people try to go down to the surface they'll often be lost but then you might see the this sort of gelatinous clouds that surround this world suddenly forming into like a 50 mile high effigy of the person who just vanished into this ocean yeah Mm. like weird shit like that so clearly this world consciousness is processing things it's able to create uncanny duplicates of people and indeed the cities all kinds of things gardens remember yeah Mm -hmm. exactly yeah tarkovsky's film doesn't show us any of this all it shows is kind of the central dramatic event which is a scientist is sent to a research lab that's in orbit over solaris and everybody has died or gone insane it's you know the science research station is fucked it's it's a little bit like the thing In that respect. Very true. He's sent in from the outside. And then what happens promptly is that his dead wife shows up. Mm. And somehow Solaris has extracted her from his memory. And she is exactly as she was in life. But he knows that this isn't her. She's dead. And apparently we don't understand the ocean, but we understand some of the ways it behaves. And one of the things it does is it seems to Draw traumatic memories out of people, at least when it's being threatened. The one of the scientists has decided he wants to like bombard the ocean with radiation, nuke it, yeah. just fucking nuke yeah. it. And this is where these effigies of people's worst memories start appearing. And this guy's ex wife is his worst memory because she committed suicide. And so what Tarkovsky leans hard into is the idea of love of somebody who is like your partner, but they're not your partner. Mm. They're yeah. like a simulation. This is a sort of sci-fi trope of the sort that Philip K. Dick liked to play with. Like, could you love an android? Mm. Yeah. You know, an android of the sort that we encounter in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep or Blade Runner. Roy Batty and his, uh, I think Pris is the name of his, his wife in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. What kind of love do they share? Yeah. Mm. The Ridley Scott film makes it clear that it's actual love. You know, what would it be like to be a robot or an android that's in love? What would it be like to be a human in love with a synthetic creature? So that's the part that Tarkovsky was most interested in. But reading Solaris, I feel like what's most interesting to Lem isn't that. Indeed, that's why Lem didn't like Solaris, the film. He was like, it isn't love in space. (laughs) That's that's exactly what he said, yeah. Yeah, he's like, what's interesting to him is basically the fact that although... The ocean, the sentient ocean of Solaris will behave in certain ways in response to certain stimuli, what it's thinking, what it is, how it is, what, what it, whether you can communicate with it. Basically, it's unknowable. It's unknowable, yeah. And Lamb fills up page after page of like imaginary accounts of the proceedings of the journal of solaristics and you know he imagines an entire new academic field of solaristics springs mm-hmm. into existence with the discovery of Solaris. And he imagines, as he does in a new cosmogony, he derives considerable pleasure from imagining the kinds of factions and disputes, the different quarrels, academic quarrels that people get up with. But after page after page after page of this, he just arrives at the idea of like, all of these bound journals of solaristics amount to precisely nothing. And by the end of the story, we are no further along in understanding the world than we were at the beginning. And his master's voice, which I haven't read, sounds like it's running version of the same kind of trope.
1: Definitely.
0: I can't help but when we discuss these sorts of stories of, of future scientists coming up against an entity they can't understand, an intelligence they can't decipher, a kind of I can't help but read into that to some extent. An attempt to evince um, science's own kind of stumpness before the human. Like like mm. in a way, mm. Interesting. the question of the strangeness of love or the alien nature of love. I mean it's immediately palpable when you frame that in the story about uh, a a human in love with a with a robot or a human in love with a double or a kind of a simulacrum of their deceased uh, lover but in a way these are just ways of exploring a very clear and present kind of problem in materialism the problem of how we account for our own humanity in a world that seems to deny it in a certain sense in a worldview yeah. that seems to deny it and so the genius of solaris is that the great mystery that the scientists can't crack is not just the simulacrum of his wife but his love for his wife to begin with the, the mm. otherness of the mm. of, of his wife if you were to follow materialism to the letter you have to tell yourself that, you know, as uh, Wilfred Sellers put it, the manifest image of your spouse is actually just a kind of concoction of your brain. There's no person in there. Consciousness is basically just a question of biochemical activity in the brain. There's nobody there. And so what does it mean to love literally a, a nothing? That's the, the, the kind of dead end or the... the I, I would say, very interesting Eldritch situation that materialism puts us in. You know, it seems like the more we know about the universe, the more stumped we become as to our own existence in it. That's a cool thought.
2: It reminds me of an Andrew W. K. song. <laughs> <laughs> this idea that you were just saying, like, you know, that the person you love is, in a certain sense, just a phantasm. It's something in here. I'm tapping my skull. Not out there, or there is someone out there, but that person out there isn't the person who's in here. You know, one of the things we do on this show when you talk about science is noticing how sometimes it's a real short trip from science to mysticism, or science and and a realm of thinking that might belong to someone like Teilhard de Chardin that doesn't feel at all like science, and yet it kind of is science. This um, idea that you're relating to no one at all, Like, there seems to be someone there, but there's no one at all. That also has a kind of esoteric dimension, a spiritual dimension, that I think comes out in this song. So hold on, I want to find the lyrics. I'm just going to read some song lyrics to you. And if all this were real, you would know it was true. It would actually feel, it would feel just like you. It would have a real voice. It would hear what you say. And with freedom of choice, it would choose its own way. Choose to then come alive with a heart and a soul, and a will to survive, and a world to control. It would conquer the land, find its own special star. It would be in command. It would travel so far, far beyond all your fears, where a ladder appears. Up the rungs it would climb, leaving you far behind. It would answer the call, it would answer your prayer, but it's no one at all, and no one is there. No one to see, no one to show, no one to be, no one to know. Wow. I don't want to end on that. That's dark. (laughs) Yeah, but this is an interesting thing. The way I read this, and it's just some asshole with an interpretation, just another (laughs) asshole with an interpretation, um, is that what's being talked about there? is kind of a higher self, like a spiritual self, your holy guardian angel, who you could be, right? And yet that is not a person. Like who you are ultimately isn't there. Who you think you are isn't really there. Mm. But in that is possible to see oblivion, Destruction? Non-being? But perhaps it's just as true to say that the discovery of the non-being of self, with the illusoriness of self, is the thing that allows you to pop a ladder out of existence and climb up it, leaving yourself far behind. Mm. Right. Do you see what I'm saying, kind of? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think this story kind of gets into that, too, because... Lem makes a lot of a lot of emphasis on the fact that we can't really know who these beings were, the players, before they started playing the game because in changing the laws of physics, they're changing themselves too. Right. Because necessarily yep. there will be different kinds of beings. And if you change the laws of physics, then the laws of logic are going to change too. And so who knows originally what kind of reasoning they had for what they were doing. And if they would have been... Bound to those laws in their like singular being, they would never have been able to become what they are, and the universe would never have been able to become what it is.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favourite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.